I want you to know I'm really excited about this chapter. And I am really thankful that Elizabeth is teaching the next one next week. But she was really thankful that I was teaching this one, and she gets next week. So God is good, let me just tell you. Um, if you did not get the, um, because of the printer issues two weeks ago, the, those um, homework questions for Chapter 8 are printed out on the table if you didn't grab one, as well as the ones for Chapter 9. So be sure you grab those if you need them. Um, but we are going to jump right in. So um, as, as most of you know already, it was almost two years ago that my mother was diagnosed with a highly aggressive form of uterine cancer. Uh, she was at the doctor on a Thursday afternoon and was in surgery the following Monday morning where the doctor determined it was stage two cancer, but he got all he could find but because it was this ag aggressive form that she would start chemo as soon as she healed from the surgery and then have radiation for 30 days and then more chemo. My mother would kill me if I showed a picture of her in the hospital, especially since she's watching this later. Hi, Mom. <laughs> I'm not showing a picture of her in the hospital. Um, but this is the group of people who were there that Monday morning just supporting and praying for her and for the rest of us. Um, there was a sense of relief at the end of that day uh, because we had a plan. We had a plan, but there was still some anxiety, some worry until she got to the other side with the all clear. We have since gotten that word. That was the last day of, of her chemo treatment. Um, and, and but she still goes for scans she'll continue to do so and throughout that year of treatment from that first picture to the last one the whole time I remember thinking if I just knew that she would make it through this if I just knew she would win I would be okay and that may have been true but I also imagined that if I knew five years ago that my mother was going to suffer through a battle with with cancer at some point in the future, I don't think that would have been as helpful. Even if I knew that she would win the battle, but have to spend a year fighting, being sick, being too exhausted and immune compromised to do the things she loved to do, losing her hair, I don't know that I would have been okay with all of it then. But this, this is what Daniel was experiencing with this vision in, in in chapter 8. So we are going to look at this prophetic vision that God gave to Daniel. We're going to see how it played out and we're going to see how Daniel felt. But this whole time as we're reading this, as we're studying this, we want to we remember Daniel was hearing everything that was going to happen to the nation of Israel. We have the luxury of this being history. We have the, the luxury of looking back and knowing what happens in the end um, for th this particular uh, portion, at least. And so, so as we read and study this morning, I want you to think about this chapter with the heart of Daniel. I want you to look at this chapter 
remembering what it meant to the Jewish people while also looking at it from the heart of today where we can look with awe and wonder at the power and the sovereignty of God. So one more thing to note as we prepare to dig into this chapter of the Word of God. Uh, this is not a pleasant chapter. We can look at it with awe. We can look at it and be amazed. We can walk out of here with a huge smile on our face and still know that this was not a good thing. Um, it, it's not a, a passage that you're going to hear preached on often, but there is still much to learn from it. Um, I gave somebody 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. You want me to read that now? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. I think I gave you the wrong paper. <laughs> oh, no, I read the wrong verse. I was just saying, because I, I don't know what I wrote down, but that's not what matched what my paper says up here. I'm in 1 Timothy, and I'm in the So as we look at this chapter, even though we, we look at it and it's, it's heartbreaking and it's scary and it's miserable, it should break our hearts just like it did Daniel's. It's filled with suffering, with pain, and with death, but it should act as an encouragement for us because we can see God's hand at work in every single verse. And it is, God put it here for a reason. And so, so we're going to just dive right in. I gave somebody uh, Daniel 8 verses 1 through 4. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision when I, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and as I sat at the wheel of canal, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and those horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Great. So if you recall from our lesson way back in Chapter 2, the book of Daniel is written in, in two different languages. Does anybody remember what those two are or what one of those two are? 
Aramaic, and what's the other one? Hebrew. Hebrew. So chapter 1 was Hebrew, chapters 2 through 7 were Aramaic, and chapter 8 through 12 are back to, to sh shifting back to Hebrew again. So why do you think we are shifting back to Hebrew now? Or why, or why do you think two through seven might have been Aramaic? Yeah, the intended audience. That's exactly right. So, so the major emphasis for chapters two through seven dealt with the future of the Gentile nations. It, or, or it dealt with Gentile nations and their future. The visions dealt with with their future. And here we start to switch switch our focus from the world to back to Israel. So we're back in Hebrew, back to, to, to looking at the future of, uh, and God's plan for the nation of Israel. So we can flip to your timeline or you can look up here when when does this occur BC. yeah around 551 bc belshazzar's third year would have been 550 or 551 whichever way you want to count it doesn't make a huge difference in our so but where are we in history and if you if it's helpful you can look at you look and look at this who's who's in control king belshazzar was was king of what empire yeah so we're still with babylon we're, we're there in babylon the um this is 12 years, about 12 years, before the handwriting on the wall from Daniel chapter 5. So this is 12 years before the Medes and the Persians are standing outside the walls of, of the, the city of Babylon, those impenetrable walls. So at, at this point in history, in, in this 550-ish era, uh, the Medes and the Persians are still battling against each other. They're still defining their own territories. But then, so, so that's, that's when we are in history. And where? Where is this, where does this vision take place? Oh, I was supposed to show that one, sorry. Uli Canal. The Uli Canal is in, and it's in Susa, right? So, so this is, um, later picture of the Persian Empire. This one's the one that's on your, um, on the back side of, of this page, right? That's that new map that you got. I've got an arrow there pointing to where Susa is. So you can see Susa and, and Babylon, you know, on your, on your paper map, they're about a thumb apart, right? Um, but, but at, at this point in time, 
Susa was, was not an important place to Babylon. Uh, it, it was really along the edge of the Babylonian Empire. If you compare that to that other map that, that we put in your, your thing, it just doesn't have Susa labeled. Um, you'll see that it's right there at the edge. Um, it, so it was, it was not really a, a, an important place to Babylon. But Daniel still knew where he was, um, which is present-day Iran, by the way. Um, but it later became important. So um, read Esther 1, 1 through 2. I was supposed to put, oh, I did them backwards. Okay, so if if you're in the ESV, it's it's the name of the king is Ahasuerus, but the um, the Greek name for him is Xerxes, same man, um, but that's why this says Ahasuerus on it. So this Esther takes place around 480 BC. Um, they are. Uh, it over he is the king over Persia, and where does it say his throne was? Susa, right? What about Nehemiah one one through three, or one through? Maybe I just need two. Oh no, it is one through three. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So Nehemiah is serving King Artaxerxes, different from King Xerxes slash Ahasuerus. This is King Artaxerxes. This is about 100 years after the fall of Babylon, about 35 or so years after the book of Esther. So the temple had been restored, but the walls of Jerusalem had not. And where did this take place? Susa. So this was an important place in the Persian Empire. Um, if you go to Susa today, you can actually see the remains of the foundation of, of a massive castle that was built there by King Darius, not Darius the Mede, King Darius of Persia. If you remember from your timeline there, the two different people. But it was about 225 miles to the east of Babylon. So it's unlikely that Daniel was actually physically transported to the city of Susa. Um, but it, was, it was more likely he was there in a, in a dream, in a vision, 
This is not uncommon. Um, if you want to look later, we're not going to today just for time purposes, but Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel is transported someplace in a vision. Um, John is transported someplace in Revelation 17. So this isn't an uncommon thing. So he's not physically there, but it's almost practically physically there because this vision is, is so, um, it, it's almost like um, a virtual reality headset, right? He's got it on and it's, it's like he's experiencing it. So then we get to the vision itself. So we've got the, the when and the where, and now we get, get to the vision itself. And remember, Daniel is, is seeing this. It, it's, he's not reading a book. He's not having to imagine these things. He is seeing this. He is hearing this. He is, he is smelling it. He is touching it. Um, this is, God knew we would be reading it thousands of years later, but it's like Daniel's watching the movie version. The, the, have you ever done the, the 4D movie at Hershey Chocolate World where they have the, the scent of the chocolate at one point and you, you feel, you know, it, it's like that, that they, he is, he is there with using all of his senses. So this is a good place to pull out that handout. Mine, again, mine looks different than yours. I think it's page 31 is what I wrote down in your, in your books, your handouts. So, um, but that's, um, yeah, we're gonna be using some of that this time. So we see, oh, I should wait before I click that. So what did Daniel see in this part of the vision? It's starting in verse, verses 3 and 4. That's, what are the things he saw? A ram with two horns. A ram with two horns. And what was special about those two horns? They were long. They were long. One was large and one was small. But one was, one was bigger than the other one, right? Mm -hmm. and, then, and then what did the ram do? He charged in three different directions. The west, the north, and the south. And then he became great and he did as he pleased, right? So we're going to come back to this verse later, but I want us to read Daniel 8.20. So these, the, the ram represents who? Or the horns on the ram, I should say. The kings, the kings of Medes, the Medes and the Persians. So which part of the statue, if you look there on your, your handout, yours is two-sided just to give you some more space. If you look on your handout, which part of the statue was... Um, uh, from Daniel 2 represented the Medes and the Persians. The chest and the, arms of the chest and the arms of silver. And which beast was it? The bear. The bear, right? That bear was the, the beast. 
and the stuff there on the screen is just what we talked about last week. So, um, but if we think, if, so if you haven't done so already, on your chart there, you want to put next to the chest and sil of uh, chest and arms of silver. You want to put that that was the bear, and then you want to start writing over here in your third column about the ram. But if we think back to that vision in Daniel 7, we, we learned a few things about the bear. We learned that he had how many ribs in his mouth? Three. And we learned that he was raised up on one side, and he was told to arise and devour much flesh. And so if we compare that just to our vision from chapter 8, we see that the one horn longer than the other versus raised up on one side, right? We see the, the ram um, charging in three directions. And if you remember from last time, we talked about those three ribs in its mouth, potentially being three different, um, different locations. We're going to take a look at that a little more in a little bit. But then he's doing as he pleased, and he becomes great. And here he's, the bear is told to arise and, and devour much flesh. Um, there are a lot of similarities between these two. But wait, because it gets better. I promise you, it gets better. So then we get to Daniel 8, verses 5 through 8. a goat with prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. So now what animal did Daniel see? He saw a goat, and the goat was coming from where? The west. From the west. So we're in Susa, and so I drew that arrow on our map up there, and I, I drew it there from, from Macedonia, which is, um, the, for the record, Alexander the Great's father was Philip of Macedonia. So um, that root of Macedonia, Macedonia, coming down from the west to Susa. And then what did it say about this goat? That the conspicuous horn between his eyes. He didn't touch the ground. What else? He came to the land with two horns. 
He came, he came to the ram, he, he trampled him, right? And then, then what, happened, uh, what happened to that great horn? It was, it was shattered, and then what? Four horns, four horns grew up. Now, some of these things, I, well, let me just let me just show you my next picture, and then we'll come back. This is where we get into my my horse racing, my roots, right? I grew up in Kentucky. The um, the Kentucky Derby is known as the fastest two minutes of sports to everyone else in the world. To Kentuckians, it's two to three weeks of a big grand festival and party and just massive event. So it's not just the two minutes. But um, the, the Kentucky Horse Park is a place outside of Lexington that I visited many times growing up. They have a, a museum. They, um, they have horses there. They have retired derby winners there um, but they they go into talking a lot about different breeds of horses the difference between work horses and thoroughbred racing horses um, but in this in this museum they show a, um, a film and they talk about the horses flying and so if you look at this picture and you look at the feet of those front two horses this is from the Kentucky Derby a few years ago, but this is a, a typical scene in, in horse racing. This would, this would be a picture that would be on the front page of, of the sports section a number of times throughout every year. Um, you see that those horses are practically flying because they aren't touching the ground. Their, their feet are not on the ground. This is what's happening with the goat. He was, he was moving very, very fast, so it looked like he was flying. So it's not that the goat was this supernatural goat. It, I mean, he was because it was a vision from God, but he was just a goat, but he was moving so fast that his feet weren't touching the ground like these horses were. So... So if we go back to Daniel, again, we'll come back to this verse later, but um, I gave somebody Daniel 8.21. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So the goat is the king of Greece. The one horn between his eyes is that first king. So which part of the statue from Daniel 2 represented the Greeks? The middle and thighs of bronze, right? And which beast in Daniel 7? The leopard, the four-winged leopard. This here, okay. And so, so again, we look at those, we look at those two visions from Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, and we see the, the leopard being very fast, we see the, um, the, the, the four being prominent with the heads and the wings, and we see those four horns. 
we see the, that he was given dominion, the, the leopard, the beast, was given dominion, and the goat is, is very powerful. We see how, how these things just come, come together just right. There, um, but the third part of this vision, this is what's new and different than the previous ones, but we are going to see some similarities to Daniel 7. So I need someone to read Daniel 8, 9 through 14. Some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was taken from him. And his host was given over to it, <clears throat> together with the regular burnt offering, which hard of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes things desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored. So this is where we get to the part that's not pleasant, right? But we see that um, when it says out of one of them came, came a little horn, that, that out of one of them, them is one of those four horns. So our focus goes from the entire world empire down to a single horn that came out of one of, of those horns. Um, but, but what, what are some of the things we see about this horn, this little horn? Started small and then grew. Started, started small and then grew. And it, it grew toward the south, the east, and the glorious land. And that's the, the map that I've, I've, with the arrows that I've got up here, is he the remember he's in Susa and so the south would have been toward Egypt the east would have been toward India and the glorious land is is Jerusalem that there is a precedent throughout that the the beautiful land the glorious land was was known as Jerusalem or Jerusalem was known as the the beautiful land so what else did this horn do It grew great. And what else? Threw down some stars. Threw the stars to the ground and then he trampled on them. Mm -hmm. And then what did he take away? Burnt the burnt offering. And what about the sanctuary? And what did he do to the truth? 
and for how long? Twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings. Yeah. So before we get into the interpretation and fulfillment of this prophecy, I want to clarify a couple of things about this this horn and that little horn that we looked at last time from Daniel seven. Flip back if you need to, but which beast did the Daniel 7 horn come out of? This is that beast that didn't have a name. The, the, the dreadful and terrifying beast, right? And what we say the dreadful and terrifying beast, that fourth beast represented, which empire? The Romans. The Romans. Now the little horn in chapter 8 comes out of the goat, and we said the goat represented what? We didn't say it. Daniel 8.21 said it, but said it, it represented which empire? Greece. So these two horns are different. So just just so you're aware, they are parallel in a lot of ways. Very similar, but one is a Greek horn and one is a Roman horn. And so, so we, we have to remember they are two different, um, two different creatures, right, for lack of a better word. So, but, but we do see similarities in those prophecies and they're going to be very similar in their fulfillment but the Daniel 8 horn will be Greek and has happened and the Daniel 7 horn will come from some form of the Roman Empire and like we talked about last week or two weeks ago it has not yet happened and so this is important as we look at the interpretation and the fulfillment of of this um, of this vision. So Daniel has this full vision, but it's still very unclear to him. Now there's, so I, um, yeah, so let's read verses 15 through 17. There is a lot in the wording of this passage, a, a lot that um, I don't feel fully able to, um, to give all the details, but we're going to sort of just barely scratch the surface to get a little bit, of, um, a little bit deeper. So Daniel tries to understand this vision and he sees one having the appearance of a man standing there. This is one of those things that I don't feel like, this one's one I don't feel like I have enough uh, insight to be able to tell you whether this is God or Gabriel that he sees standing there. There were strong arguments for both um, 
by theologians that I fully trust their knowledge and uh, abilities. And so um, either way, it is some supernatural being because both God and Gabriel would be a, a divine uh, a divine encounter. But then he hears a man's voice who's giving instructions to Gabriel. So who was the voice? Gabriel. Gabriel's getting the instructions. So who does who would who would an angel get their instructions from? God. From God. So the voice is God. So so but this time here's here's the amazing part. Daniel is struggling to understand he doesn't even have to ask. God just said, Gabriel, go and tell him. God wants to make it abundantly clear to him. Um, a, a note also on verse 17 where it says, Understand, O son of man. Um, this is not the son of man that is talked about in Daniel 7. The, the Jesus son of man. This is um, in, in Hebrew, the word translates to, to son of Adam. So kind of if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, the C.S. Lewis r refers to the boys are sons of Adam and the girls are daughters of Eve. It's just acknowledging his humanity. Um, that was a, a term they used to acknowledge humanity. This was not calling David, I mean calling Daniel the Messiah. And then at the last part of that verse where it says, um, uh, in the ESV, it says that the vision is for the time of the end. This is one of those that I read and I followed it enough to, to understand it, but not to teach it um, because it deals with the, the terminology and the language and the grammar that was used and some of those things. But in the context of this prophecy, in the, in the context with that, that grammar and things like that, this is the end of the fulfillment of this vision, not the end times um, revelation types of things. Just lots of details that I can, I can send you the, a, a screenshot of the passage from the book that I read, but it was not something that grammar is not my strong suit if you haven't noticed and so it is um, I do, I just don't have the insight to explain that so you just have to trust me on that one so this the time of the end is the time of the end of this vision not the end of time yeah so sorry we can only do what we can do right um, and then Daniel 8, 18 through 26. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. 
And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall, he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So this is where we get to the really cool part. This is the part that should leave every one of us in complete awe of the sovereignty of God. And this is the part where I told you a few weeks ago when we had that history lesson that Elizabeth taught, that, that just wait, because it'll all come together and you'll be like, whoa, yeah, this is it. So um, this is the part that's going to just make you step back and say, wow. Uh, Daniel Aiken says, God is in absolute control of all that is and all that will happen. This includes the trials and tribulation of his people. Human powers are merely instruments in the hands of an all-powerful and providential God. So like we said, what is it that the ram represents? Verse 20. The two kings. Why are we not going? There we go. And so, so if we look back at, at the way Daniel described the ram, let's see how that fits in with history. So what did, again, just refresh our memories. What did the vision say about the ram? So this was verses 3 and 4. Right? How many horns? And what, what, about, what was special about one of those horns? Okay, and then he came in and charged in three different directions. And then he, um, he did as he pleased, right? And so let's compare that with history. This ram with two horns, it said, flat out, it's the kings of Media and Persia. But the Persian king, that one horn that grew longer, the Persian king had more power and when you look at this period of time the Medes are really f forgotten and it really is it really is the Persian Empire is what you hear about the Persian king had more power and he ended up taking taking over when he charges in three directions I think I put the map up next he charges in three directions this is, again, this is the, the ram coming from Susa. And I, I think we talked about it last week with those, those three ribs. And I gave you the dates, and I don't have them written down in here. But, but he went to the west and conquered Babylon. Because remember, we're in Susa. The west to conquer Babylon. The north to conquer Lydia. And the south to conquer Egypt, 
Egypt. That's where we come to the Persian Empire. They started over in, uh, not all the way to India, but that side, and moved to the west. And he, he did as he pleased. At, at that point in time, he was, they were unstoppable, right? The Medes and the Persians were unstoppable. But then, um, oh yeah, no, I didn't need that. Okay, so he, the, the Medes and the Persians being that ram, they fit that ram perfectly. And there's no question about that, the fulfillment of that particular part of this vision. But then we get to the goat. And the goat represented, uh, represented the Greeks, represented the king of, of Greece. Now, I don't know if any of you are like me, but I read the word in the ESV and the goat is the king of Greece. And I was like, it doesn't really say Greece. There's no way it really says Greece. This was 200 years before Greece was like on the radar. So the, the Hebrew word, I did, some, I did some extra research on this one, word study. The Hebrew word is Yavan. Um, this was the name of uh, the grandson of Noah, son of Japheth, whose name was Yavan. Guess where Yavin and his descendants settled? Greece. They settled in Greece. So the Hebrew word Yavin is translated as Ionia, which is the word for Greece. So it really did say Greece. Isn't that amazing? I don't know. You guys can just think I'm crazy and that's okay, but I thought that was really neat. So we see this prominent horn, this notable horn. Uh, I think the ESV used the word conspicuous. Is the first king, Alexander the Great. And the name itself is very notable. You may not have remembered much detail about Alexander the Great prior to our study. But you definitely knew the name. It wasn't a new name to you. Uh, that conspicuous horn is very well known thousands of years later. And we see that, that Greece comes in from the west and tramples all over Persia. In just 12 years, the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, conquered the entire civilized world without losing a single battle. Talk about exceedingly great and strong and powerful. Dr. David Jeremiah says in his book, The Handwriting on the Wall, um, he says, 200 years before Alexander died, God described the minutest detail exactly how history was going to be written. A story was told that when Alexander was on his way to Jerusalem to conquer that city, one of the Jewish priests gave him a copy of the book of Daniel and said, you've got to read this, you're in here. Alexander read the prophecy and it was said he got down on his knees and worshiped. 
However, he did not save himself from an early death, just as it was foretold. So who knows if this story is true, but it's definitely an interesting idea to think about, right? To think about that Alexander the Great, that the Jewish priest recognized this was, this was who this was talking about, and that Alexander even recognized for himself that this was who it was talked about. Just, just an interesting thing to think about. But either way, Alexander likely thought he was doing his own work, that he was achieving greatness because of his strategy, his tactics, that, that not touching the ground. He had this, uh, Elizabeth talked about, it's that blitzkrieg attack method or what came to be known as the blitzkrieg that was just, they came in so fast that they would come to the place and they wouldn't even rest because he had trained his soldiers so well. Th um, so he thought this was because of his strategy and tactics and, and military intelligence. But in reality, he was fulfilling God's plan. Alexander the Great unified the civilized world with a single language when he Hellenized or Greekified the, the empire as it expanded. He made the conquered empires become Greek in language and culture. The language of the New Testament is Greek. Right? Everybody knew Greek because of Alexander the Great. So everybody could read the New Testament. He built roads and highways so that he could travel through his empire. These are the same roads that Rome expanded. And these are the same roads that early church missionaries used to travel to tell the world about Jesus. David Jeremiah says Alexander never knew how he was being used to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ and the dissemination of the gospel. He thought he was doing his own thing. But when that goat, when, that, when Greece became exceedingly great and that powerful horn broke, what happened to the first king of Greece? He died and he died young. He was 33 years old. And what happened to the Greek empire after his death? Split into four different kingdoms with four different rulers, four different horns. So four horns took the place of the one horn. And you look at the way this prophecy was fulfilled and you think, you're starting to think, wow, right? I can tell. I know you are. But we're not done yet. There's still more. It's like those, those infomercials. But wait, there's more. We still have to look at that little horn that, that came out of one of the four horns. Um, oh, I forgot. Here's the four kingdoms. So as a reminder, we said the little horn grew exceedingly great. He grew toward the south, the east, and the glorious land. He threw some of the stars to the ground and trampled on them. He took away the burnt offering. He overthrew the sanctuary. He throws truth to the ground. He was prosperous, and it lasted 2,300 evenings and mornings. 
So here's the cool part. In 175 BC, a cruel tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes came to power in the Seleucid Empire, one of those four kingdoms. Um, if we look back, that's the big yellow one. Right? He came to power in, in that, as king of that, um, that chunk. He worked to spread that territory toward Egypt and India. He tried to attack Rome and failed, so he turned his attention to Jerusalem. He attacked Egypt to the south. He tried to attack, or he attacked India to the east, and then he turned to the glorious land. Um, if you remember, in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, just from Bible history, King Cyrus and, and other Persian kings allowed for the temple and the walls of the city of Jerusalem to, to be rebuilt. They allowed for the worship of God to continue. And so Jerusalem, while it was, um, while it was Hellenized in some ways, they were also still kind of the holdout um, for, for they didn't completely um, fall into Zeus and Hera and all those um, Greek gods. So let me tell you a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes and how he truly fits the prophecy of the little horn perfectly. So his persecution of the Jews, so he, came to, he, he rose to power in 175 B.C., but his persecution of the Jews began in 170 B.C. Much of this is recorded in the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. While we don't believe this is a part of the canon of Scripture, there are, um, the, they are in the, the Catholic Bible, they are readily accessible. It, it is still a historical document that does shed light on this era of Jewish history. Just because it's not scripture doesn't mean it's not beneficial and it's not true. Um, and, and if you have more questions about that, ask me. Just we don't have the time to really dig too far into it here, but um, it sheds light on, on this era of Jewish history and it can make for very interesting reading so just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean that it cannot be of benefit to the believer. Just remember what you're reading. Um, so Antiochus IV, he actually gave himself the name Epiphanes. Remember that, um, that it said, uh, oh, where'd it go? I'm on the wrong spot. Anyway, it says he, he uh, sort of gave himself power, gave himself, he was, he was power hungry, right? So he gave himself the name Epiphanes. Epiphanes means uh, an illustrious manifestation of God. In essence, Antiochus IV, by naming himself Epiphanes, is claiming to be a revelation of the gods. He printed coins with his face on them that are made to look similar to Zeus, 
who was one of the one of or the main Greek god. And he printed the word theos or or God, the Greek word for God, on them. His enemies called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman, instead of Epiphanes, meaning manifestation of God. So, um, but the vision, that vision, if we go back to the little horn, it, it showed this little horn growing to the host of heaven and throwing some of the stars to the ground. This is Antiochus claiming to be equal to God. In 168 BC, he attacked the city of Jerusalem with 20,000 men in order to level the city. He came in on the Sabbath. He murdered tens of thousands of Jews, really most of the men in the city. And then, um, and then he took the women and children as slaves. He claimed, Antiochus claimed that he was just continuing to Hellenize the empire. He was just trying to, to speed up the Greekifying process for them. He created laws to outlaw the Sabbath, to outlaw circumcision, and to even, even to, to get rid of the, the Levitical dietary laws. He forced the Jews to eat pork. He forced them to participate in Greek Olympic-style games right outside the temple. Seems harmless, except that to participate in the Greek Olympic-style games, you had to strip down to nothing. This, for the Jews, was extreme humiliation. During the Feast of the Tabernacles for the Jews, Antiochus brought in the Feast of Bacchanalia in order to worship Bacchus, the Greek god of wine and pleasure. He replaced the altar of God in the temple with an altar to Zeus. Remember that took away the burnt offerings part? Then, inside the temple, on that new altar, he sacrificed a pig. This would have desecrated the temple. This would have overthrown the sanctuary. You weren't allowed to read the scriptures. In fact, every copy that could be found was burned. If you were found in possession of any part of the scripture, you were put to death. That part where it says throws to truth to the ground. Truth was the scripture. Yeah. Daniel saw all of this in the vision and he was overwhelmed. And so he asked, how long? And the response was 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, 2,300 evenings and mornings can be read in two different ways. It can be read as 2,300 days, or it can be read as, um, well, that 2,300 days, oh, wait, I got a slide for this. 2,300 days is about seven years. Antiochus persecuted the Jews from 170 B.C. until his death in 163 B.C. Seven years. Does 
from from what I didn't I didn't dig too far in the past, but I would I would agree that that would be yeah that he was one of the first. But if you look at if you look at that 2300 as 2300 evenings plus mornings, that's 1150 days, which is about three and a half years. The temple was desecrated. That that pig was slaughtered on the altar in 168 BC and was restored in 164 BC when they were able to go come in and actually cleanse the temple three and a half years. Either way, both sets of timing works and it's not a stretch. We, we talked about when we try to, um, last time the, the, I think I read you the quote from David Jeremiah about um, trying to, to come up with who the Antichrist would be and if you, if, if you couldn't get the, by putting uh, numbers to the letters of the alphabet, and if you couldn't get it to work, you respelled the name, and if that didn't work, you added a name, or you just plain fudged the numbers, right? We're not fudging the numbers here. Both ways, both ways of reading 2300 evenings and mornings totally direct us to Antiochus Epiphanes as being this little horn. And verses 24 and 25 of Daniel 8, they clarify, um, they clarify this vision some more from what da Daniel actually saw. Um, Dr. Aiken breaks it down in uh, the Christ-Centered Exposition commentary. He says uh, in verse 24, it says, His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He is a satanically empowered puppet. And then it says, he will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He was victorious in battle and he achieved power and massive wealth. It says he will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He defeated many opponents in war and, and successfully against God's people for right at seven years. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. Antiochus Epiphanes was shrewd and deceptive, stopping at nothing to further his agenda and prosper his hand. Double-faced agreements and duplicitous dealings were his calling cards. He will, in his own mind, exalt himself. Arrogance, pride, and self-deification were his unholy trinity. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He was ruthless and an unconscionable murderer. He will even stand against the prince of princes. He stands in opposition to God himself because he thinks he is, or thought he was, Zeus manifest. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. So it's that we're going to, we're going to look at that one. You want to know how Antiochus IV died? The book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 9, verses 5 through 9, say this. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. 
As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels for which there was no relief and with sharp internal tortures. And that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many strange inflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but he was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to drive even faster. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Thus he, who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the mountains in, in a balance, was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms, and while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away, and because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. That was the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. Not by human hand, right? All of this fits so beautifully into that vision that there is no doubt that this is what God was showing to Daniel in this vision. It, in fact, it matches up so well that many liberal scholars believe that the vision had to have been written after the fact and not before. But we know that's not what the Bible tells us, right? When did Daniel have his vision? The third year of King Belshazzar was 551. BC. This is straight from the Bible, right? And when did Antiochus IV persecute the Jews? 170 to 163, right? This is from historical accounts. I read you from Maccabees, which was the Jewish account, but there are lots of, um, lots of non-Jewish accounts of Antiochus Epiphanes as well. Um, Gabriel told Daniel to write down the vision in verse 26, which is what he did. Then we get to see Daniel's response to this whole thing in verse 27. I gave that to somebody. So what happened to Daniel? He got sick. He was overwhelmed and sick for days. But God wins. And there was an end to the persecution. So why was he sick? He knew that to get to the end, there was going to be pain and suffering and turmoil and evil in the world. He, was, he, he found great comfort that God was in control. This was not sickness because of a lack of faith. This was sickness because there was so much evil in the world. And God's people were going to suffer terribly before it got better. Warren Wiersbe says, Daniel felt the burden of the suffering of his people that his people would experience. And he knew the awful consequences of truth being cast to the ground. 
This is, this is the way I was trying to explain at the beginning. Just because you know God's going to win doesn't necessarily make it easier to know you're going to go through the struggle. We do know, we do know that God wins. We do know that, as a, a pastor of mine used to say, that Romans 8.28 is still in the Bible. That's the one that says, and we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We know that it's for God's good. That doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. That doesn't mean that, that God's people aren't going to suffer. That doesn't mean that there's not evil in this world. That's, that's why Daniel was sick. But then... Daniel recovered, and what did he do? He went about the king's business. He went back to work because God called him to do it. He didn't live in hiding from the evil. He didn't live a high from the excitement of the vision. He did what had to be done for God's glory. So just like, just like Daniel did, we need to do just like Daniel did. He went about the work of, of the king to be a witness to the power of God to the Persian Empire. Daniel was shown the revelation from God and was overwhelmed by it. We have access to the truth of God every day. And we need to allow it to touch our hearts in a way that we are broken by it. But also knowing that we need to carry on in the work of the King of Kings. So as we conclude our lesson on Daniel 8, any thoughts or ideas on a theme for the chapter? From ashes to glory. From, from, ashes, to glory. from ashes to glory. That's excellent. You know, I just looked at those details of how God was in those details. Seven years. Seven years, he knew it. And that was, um, that was it. Um, I also wrote down, we can take comfort that trials and persecution will come, but that God is in control and wins in the end every single time. So if you're tracking that on, oh, I lost the page, on your at-a-glance chart on page 34, you can, you can fill in one of those or your own um, for that. And then we can move into our discussion time.